The following is a message by Dr. W. Robert Godfrey of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Hear God's word this morning from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 43. We'll begin to read at verse 22 and read on into chapter 44 through verse 8. This is the word of the Lord. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices, I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sin. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins." Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. But now, hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Yeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land, and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring, and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams, This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it, and you are my witnesses? Is there any God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. These are the words of the living God. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning. Grant that we may, in the way that you have intended, hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us, in our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. 
Beginning with a uh, convocation at the beginning of the academic year is a, a relatively new thing among us, although I think it's actually an old thing uh, if you go back far enough in Westminster's history. Um, that's one of the value of historians. One of the few things that we contribute is to point out that most new ideas are actually old ones. Um, uh, but it's an excellent way to begin. Uh, begin with a time of worship, a time of reflection on the Word of God, uh, because as I said to some of you yesterday, we really have come here uh, as a community, above all else, to study God's Word, to seek to know God's Word better, to seek to become well-prepared uh, to fulfill the calling to which the Lord is calling us, whether that is as uh, pastors or as teachers or as missionaries or uh, as members of the church who are well-informed and can be of help uh, to the ministers and elders uh, and people of God. Uh, our earnest desire is that we should be faithful students and faithful teachers of God's Word. And we know that we are not fit for that in ourselves. We are not able to do that on their own, our own. For that, we need the Holy Spirit. Uh, we know that, that the Holy Spirit is the ultimate teacher of every Christian heart and of the church. Uh, he is our strength, He is our wisdom. And uh, he is the opener of his word, as he inspired it in the first place, so he continues uh, to work through it. And the amazing thing is that he is pleased to use weak instruments like us. Uh, No matter how much you learn, no matter uh, how well you do in classes, and looking out I can tell that all the A students in Hebrew are here this morning, um, no matter how well you do, we have to remember how really weak we are as instruments in his hand, uh, how little ultimately we know. But our confession of the power of the word and the power and necessity of the spirit uh, should not blind us to the fact that we have to be diligent workers at studying that word. There are forms of spirituality abroad today that would say, well, the word is so clear that we hardly have to work at it to know what it says. And we do indeed confess that the word is clear, but that does not remove from us the responsibility of studying it with care. There are spiritualities that say the power of the spirit is so great among us that the spirit will do all the work. And all we have to do is be instruments open to the work of the spirit. It's said that Charles Grandison Finney used to say that the spirit would give him what he needed to say as he walked from the chair to the pulpit. And I've heard many sermons like that. (laughs) Uh, But I commend to you something else. I commend to you a hard work at the text so that we may really know what it says. Sometimes when we look just at the surface meaning of the text, we miss the real meaning. Remember years ago, one of the most distinguished preachers in the Christian Reformed Church wrote a little uh, uh, essay on how one might preach the text three blind mice. And he came up with three quite different outlines on that text. Um, Warning ministers and people uh, that it's not always self-evident how a text ought to be preached. That only careful study, careful reflection can help us see that. Uh, There's an easy sermon to preach in our text before us, a surface sermon, an immediately available sermon. Let me give you the outline of a uh, possible sermon 
from the early verses of Isaiah 44. Point one, the Lord is the Savior. It's perfectly clear, isn't it? Point two, you are my witnesses. Make me known in the world. Point three, don't be afraid. Don't let the world intimidate you. Get on with your work. Not a bad sermon. The Lord is our Savior. We could develop that thought. You're to be his witnesses. We could develop that thought. And you're not to be afraid. We could develop that thought. We'd preach, wouldn't we? It would even be biblical. All three of those points are perfectly biblical, aren't they? God is the Savior. We are to be his witnesses. We're not to be afraid of the world. The only trouble is, it seems to me, that's not what this text is saying. Even though those words are to be found in this text, it's not really what the text is saying. I've tried to study this text. You'll have to evaluate whether I got it right or not. But I think this text is saying something much more profound, much more particular, much more necessary for us. And the first observation we can make, although not the first point of the sermon, this is still the introduction, don't get too hopeful, (laughs) is that the problem with the easy sermon is that it focuses too much on us, whereas this text doesn't focus on us. This text focuses on God. This text is not two-thirds about us. It's almost 100% about God. I was reading a novel this morning. It's a shameful thing, but confession is good for the soul. And in that novel, I ran across a sentence that I found arresting. Uh, It's in reference to uh, one of the lead characters in the novel, a young woman who's just been released from prison. And she's feeling kind of religious. And the novelist writes, The impulse to religion is nothing to do with God. It's the urge to renew ourselves. And I thought, that's not a bad definition of the idolatry that surrounds us on every hand. Religion that has very little to do with God and is all about us, how we're doing, how we're feeling, how we're being changed, how we're being renewed, how we're getting better. How we're feeling good. We have to be very careful about that kind of religion. Religion that has nothing to do with God. Or as Augustine might have put it, religion that makes God a means to an end. A religion that uses God to reach something else, which is what we really want. And this text in Isaiah is a powerful reminder that true religion is about God in the first place, is about who he is, is about what he has done. And therefore, the first point of our sermon uh, is not that God is our Savior, but the theme of the whole sermon is God is our Savior. And God wants to establish that through the words of the prophet Isaiah for his ancient people. He wants to establish that in our hearts and minds today. He is our Savior, and he wants us to know that. And he wants us to know that by talking about what he's done in the past, what he'll do in the future, and what he's doing right now. That, it seems to me, are the three points of Isaiah's sermon for us this morning. God 
is our Savior, and we know that in terms of what he's done in the past. As we read in Isaiah 44, verses 6 and 8, I am the first, have I not told you from of old, and declared it. And he says, I established my ancient people. Am Olam has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? Am Olam, ancient people, everlasting people, always people. I have always had my people, says the Lord. I am the Savior who has created a people for my name and who in spite of sin and its destructive powers has I'm the one who has preserved a people for my name. Verse 43, verse 27. Your first father sinned. Look that up in a commentary. Commentaries are wonderfully useful things. Commentary said, yeah, that could be Adam, or it could be Abraham, or it could be Jacob. (laughs) Wonderful, isn't it? It's almost like not looking it up. Um, (laughs) What is Isaiah saying here? Well, he's, he's talking in the context, to be sure, of the formation of Israel. But in the context, many times, he goes back to creation. Isaiah 42, verse 5, God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. God, as he's looking back as the the savior of his people, begins with his creative action. And I'm fairly certain in verse 27 and verse 43, it's talking about Adam, our first father, who, although surrounded by the blessings and kindness of God turned his back upon God and by that introduced sin into the world in a way that would left to itself destroy mankind and have left God the creator with no people but God is never frustrated in his purpose he will have a people for his name and so from of old he act to redeem that people he formed a people he saved a people and the great Redemptive event of the Old Testament is the Exodus, Isaiah 43, 16 and 17. The Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior, they lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished like a quenched wick. Today, people still travel to Egypt, don't they, to see the wonders that we could never replicate today of pyramids and temples. And God, from the hand of that mighty kingdom, delivered a little people of no power and put out the power of Egypt like a candle being snuffed. I, I am the Lord. Who will you compare to me? says the Lord. And Isaiah, you see, invites us to reflect on all that God has done to save a people through the ages, even sometimes through judgment. We read in uh, Isaiah 42, verses 24 and 25, I am he who gave up Jacob to the looter, 
or, I'm sorry, who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom you sinned and whose ways they would not walk, whose law they would not obey? So he poured on them the heat of his anger, the might of battle. It set him on fire. He set him on fire all around, but he, they did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. God has had from time to time to come with a kind of judgment and chastisement to his people in history because they slumbered. There was, of course, a, a uniqueness to the judgments that God visited on Israel, a uniqueness to the exile into which they were led. But it stands as a kind of warning to us, doesn't it? Because the Lord of the Covenant still walks amongst the candlesticks of his people and still warns that there's judgment in our history, too, when we neglect his word and wander from his ways. And part of Isaiah's point is to to remind us that though God is a savior to his people, he is not a sap. He is not to be presumed on. He is not to be taken for granted. But he's active in the history of his people to lead, to guide, to correct, to purify. And Isaiah is saying, oh, my people, as you think about your God, remember who he is. Remember what he's done in the past. You ought to be witnesses to these things. And you see, when he says that, Isaiah is not so much saying, you have a duty to go out and knock on doors and be witnesses. He's saying you ought to remember these things. You ought to believe these things. These ought to be what the truths that inform your life. And his concern, the prophet's concern, is that the people have not remembered. They have too frequently forgotten. If we look back into Isaiah 43, um, verses 9 and 10, it's really rather intriguing. God says, bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears, All the nations come together, the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove the right. Let them say, hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. I think what the prophet is saying here is the very people who ought to be witnessing to the truth of the Lord are blind. They're being brought into court, but they... Don't understand. One of the little ironies of church history that this is the verse Jehovah's Witnesses use to name themselves. It's the danger, you see, of not understanding a biblical text, it seems to me. Although they fulfill this text, don't they? They are blind people knocking on your door, witnessing to that which is not true. And so the Lord is not so much laying a duty upon us in these words as calling us to repentance and to faith. Calling us to recognize our blindness and our need. Calling us to remember that we really ought to be trusting in the Lord. We really ought to be remembering all that he has done in the past for his people. That's how we know that the Lord is our Savior. He's been the Savior in the past, and he says in this text, Point two, if you're keeping notes or just timing the progress. Um, Point two is he's the God who knows the future. 
Who is like me, says the Lord, proclaiming things before they happen? Who is like me, who is able to tell you what will come to pass because I bring the future to pass? None of the gods of this world can do that. But the Lord has done it over and over and over, hasn't he, in the mouths of his prophets. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, these things are recorded that the Lord knew what would come to pass, and he brought it to pass. And we ought to remember these things. The Lord here says, I'm going to do a new thing in the future. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell them to you. And what is it above all else that is going to come to pass? He says, a time of refreshment. Verse four, uh, chapter 44, verses 3 and 4. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. The new thing that the Lord is doing is to fulfill the salvation of his people. What was only pictured in the Exodus will now be fully accomplished. And how will the Lord fully accomplish that? By sending his servant. By sending his servant. Not Israel who failed in her service. But a servant now who will in all ways do the will of the Father. As the prophet so beautifully prophesied the beginning of Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands await for his law. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you, that is, to the servant as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to none other. The Lord, you see, is going to save his people through his servant. And at least implicit in this text is that that servant really will be the Lord himself come to his people. That's what the Lord has promised to do. That's the new thing that he is going to do. He's going to take upon himself the salvation of his people in the person of his servant to take away the burden of sin. Isaiah 43, verses 23 and 24. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not brought me sweet cane with honey or satisfied me with the fat of sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Amazing, isn't it? The Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, the gatherer and preserver of his people, 
must say to his people, far from honoring me and recognizing me and remembering me and worshiping me, you have done only one thing for me. You have burdened me with your sins. And how will the Lord respond? Verse 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Isn't that amazing? Really unbelievable when you think about it. You might almost call it good news. That the Lord, the creator, the preserver of this world, instead of coming in judgment to destroy a wicked and rebellious people, has said, instead I will come to save you, to preserve you, to take your sin upon me. Why? That he might be glorified for his own sake, for his own reputation, that he is not a destroyer of his people, but he is the savior of his people. That's what he has promised to do. That's the hope that he brings to us. He will forgive our sins, blotting them out, remembering them no more, and he will renew us. He will send his spirit among us. He will change us. He'll open our eyes. He'll open our ears. He'll soften our hearts. He will make us, in the power of his servant and in the power of his spirit, a new people. And what a blessing that what Isaiah prophesied, we have had the privilege to see fulfilled. That, in a sense, is not the future for us. That's the past for us. That's what we remember. And we can say, then, uh, how glorious it is that what the Lord prophesied, he has fulfilled. What he promised to do, he has done. That new thing has been worked out amongst his people. He has sent his servant who took our sin upon himself on the cross. And he has sent his spirit into our hearts to give us faith and to make us new. We see that. We know that. That's the message we're to carry forth. The message that God is indeed the Savior. And Isaiah wants to say, thirdly, that God is not only the God who saved in the past and the God who will save in the future, but God is the Savior with his people right now. In these last three verses of our text, verses 6 through 8 of chapter 44, a whole series of titles are given to the Lord. He is Yahweh. He is King. He is Redeemer. He is Yahweh of hosts. He is the only God. He is the rock. None of those things are simply past or future. They are present for the people of God. He is the covenant God. He is the only God. He is the king of his people. He is the leader of armies of angels to protect his people. And he is the redeemer. That's the truth for us now. That's the hope that should fill us. That we have a rock underneath our feet. If we go back and look at the Psalter, we discover that that rock 
uh, is often used in, in primarily two ways. One, as an absolutely certain place to stand, a place that will not be shaken. This last Sunday morning, about uh, 10 o'clock, I'm not sure where you were, uh, I was in church. I was standing and reciting the Apostles' Creed, and we had just confessed, he shall come again to judge the living and the dead, and the whole church went boom. It was a fairly impressive moment, (laughs) somewhat memorable. Uh, And it reminds us that uh, none of the rocks that look so stable in California can be relied upon. They are not certain places to stand. Uh, But the confession of Scripture is that we have a certain place to stand that will never be shaken. And not only is that a secure place to stand, but it's a place of protection. God is a rock and a refuge for his people. He is the protector of us in our struggles, in our miseries, in our sins, in our difficulties, in our doubts. And that's why Isaiah comes with such a comforting word to us. The God who has always kept his people in the past, the God who will always keep his people in the future, right now is the God who keeps and saves and preserves and protects his people. He is our rock. And we are called to believe that. We are called to witness to that, not so much by this text, but we are. And we're called to do that without fear. Without fear of whom? Don't think Isaiah, when he says in verse 8, fear not nor be afraid, says don't be afraid of the world. He's saying don't be afraid of God. God, the God of all power. God, the God of all holiness. God, the God who comes even to his people with chastisement and punishment. You don't need to fear him. Even though that would be a likely response to the revelation of his character. Because he's promised to come, to redeem, to be our rock to be our protection. And so as we study the word, let's remember that although the word does indeed have important duties to which we're called, important ways of living out the truth of the gospel, necessary in those who truly belong to Christ, that the word in the first place tells us about God. Religion is not in the first place about self-renewal. Religion in the first place is about God. And when we know that, then our lives really are changed. I've been working on a little book on John Calvin and uh, was just recently rereading Theodore Beza, his close friend's biography of Calvin that he wrote a few years after Calvin's death. One of the remarkable things he records is that Calvin, on his deathbed, was heard to say over and over again, You crush me, O Lord, but it is more than enough for me to know that this comes from your hand. Calvin, in a sense, was not being renewed on his deathbed. 
he was being crushed to death. But he said, in effect, it's okay because I know you are doing this. He looked to God. May we, in our study of his word this semester, together, always look to God as we know him in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, how thankful we are for the rich promises of your word, which draw us to you. And we pray, O Lord, that we might be a people who are not blind to what you've done in the past or what you will do in the future, but rather by the power of your spirit, may we have open eyes and open ears to know you today, to rejoice in you, and to find our hope, our strength in Jesus Christ, our Savior, and in him alone. Hear us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2007 Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way, and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.